Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome. My name is Marissa Miley, and I'm the Deputy Editor of Global Health at the Ground Truth Project. And I will be moderating the discussion today. This event is a collaboration of the Forum at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Ground Truth Project and Global Post. And the program today, Putting Mothers and Babies First, Benefits Across a Lifetime, will address important ways to improve maternal and child health around the world. I'll begin by introducing the panelists. Um, joining us to my right, uh, Anna Langer, who's the director of the Maternal Health Task Force at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Um, sitting next to Anna, we have Joy Riggs-Perla, who's the director of Saving Newborn Lives at Save the Children. And last, uh, we have Alicia Yeaman, who's the policy director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard. And joining us remotely, we have Kirsten Gagnier, who's the executive director of the Mobile Alliance for Maternal Action. Um, one of the smartest investments a society can make is to foster the health and education of its women and children. Um, and recognizing the importance of this, the United Nations 15 years ago um, identified improving maternal health and reducing child mortality as part of its Millennium Development Goals. And as these goals approach their deadline at the end of this year, we do know that there has been significant progress. Um, since 1990, maternal deaths have fallen by almost 50% um, and child deaths have fallen similarly. But there is still a, a long way to go and a lot of progress to be uh, made. Hundreds of thousands of women um, die each year unnecessarily of complications of pregnancy and childbirth. And children too are dying of preventable causes. Um, more than six million children died before their fifth birthday in 2013 and nearly half of them died as babies in their first month of life. Together, these, these deaths, altogether, these deaths have profound impacts on families and communities. And we're going to explore these impacts as well as um, a call to action to integrate uh, maternal and child care in the hopes of improving um, these outcomes today. Um, so we will begin the event uh, today with a discussion among the panelists, and then we'll open up for Q&A. And if you're watching online, questions for the panelists can be emailed to theforum at hsph.harvard.edu or tweeted to at forumhsph using the hashtag mothersbabiesfirst, all one word. And you can also participate in a live chat discussion that's happening on the forum's website right now. <coughs> uh, so to start our discussion, let's look at a video from Save the Children that um, looks at the vulnerability of the newborn period. Wana 
Mama Kanjula ati otebekanse bintu byawe tujinde Nuko kunza rusumwana wanje Nuko bisa kwe gumambiye yonja mbiye yonjera Nuko nko bana sukunza rusumwana wanje ngamuzara akamboneza baize kumboneza nanye nuko kumpahere bakamboneza So that clip really focused on the newborn period, and today we're um, looking not just at the, the important connections between women, uh, mothers and children during the first um, month of life, but also extending beyond. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about um, today. So I'd, I'd love to start with you, Anna, and um, just to, to help elaborate on why, you know, more about these strong connections between women and children and why it's important to talk about them. Sure, thank you. Well, the health and the lives of mothers and newborns and children in general are inextricably linked from many different perspectives, from a biological perspective, from a social perspective, and from a health systems perspective as well. So biologically, uh, the health and the nutritional status and the well-being of the mother in general strongly influences the chances of survival and well-being of the fetus during pregnancy and the newborn later, and uh, even older children. Uh, so the connections between both are completely close. In terms of uh, the social connections, the mother, uh, mothers uh, everywhere in the world, developed and developing countries, are the primary care caretakers at home. So when a mother uh, is not there, uh, children, not only the newborn, the index child of a particular pregnancy, but children in general in the family, will suffer dire consequences in terms of many different aspects of their lives that I think we will touch upon later during the, the panel. And finally, from a health system's perspective, a functional health system is absolutely necessary to address both the needs of the mother and the newborn. And when the infrastructure is poor, when there are no supplies, when providers are not trained, both mothers and newborns suffer alike. So there are different approaches to, um, to serve both the needs of mothers and, and babies. One of them, uh, which we all think is promising, is integration. Uh, using a simple definition, integrated care would mean a, a type of care that addresses simultaneously both the needs of the mother uh, and the baby. Although that makes perfect sense from a conceptual perspective, uh, we still don't have too much evidence about how to make that happen. Uh, so uh, we are now engaged in many efforts uh, to promote integration and to generate uh, uh, evaluate the, the, the benefits of integration, the challenges uh, that are uh, involved in integrating care, and in that way, hopefully, address both the needs of the mothers and the babies at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
Joy, you and Save the Children certainly um, work a lot at the country level, and I was wondering if you could talk about what these challenges look like on the ground for integrating you know, maternal and child care. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, and um, thank you for having me on this distinguished panel. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, mm -hmm. As you said, there are some specific challenges that you face uh, that program managers face on the ground that can adversely affect the quality of the care that mothers and newborns get. Uh, but also can affect the access to care. In other words, the equity of the services provided can be influenced very much by the lack of integration. So just to give you a few examples of, of some of the things that cause these complications at the, at the uh, program level and at the service delivery, delivery level, one of the things I've seen is there's often a separation organizationally uh, in a Ministry of Health, for instance, in where newborn services are placed versus where maternal services are placed. And so the, the two are separated. Newborns are with child health, maternal and family planning and other services are often a different unit. That can cause problems with program coordination. It can cause problems where one or the other gets more or less emphasis. And so that, that can actually lead to problems in service delivery. Uh, you, you met Nurse Betty on the film. She's an example of a rural midwife who's out there practicing by herself. And many people say, well, that's perfect integration because she's delivering babies and she's taking care of newborns at the same time. But in fact, that can be a problem if she doesn't have good clinical skills to take care of both. And then you can imagine what, would, what happens when that nurse midwife encounters uh, complications of some kind during the delivery process and can't manage those things. So uh, that's not an example of good integration and needs to be thought through carefully. Um, the lack of supplies and equipment are a perennial problem, as you all know, throughout the developing world. And this can be exacerbated when you've got programs that focus only on the mother or programs that focus only on newborns. Uh, because then you find yourself in a situation where you're able to deal with one problem, but you can't with the other because of the lack of those things. And so bringing programs together to make sure that those supplies are needed and that they're in the pipeline is extremely important. Uh, waiver of fee payments is something that, that has been done in many developing countries in order to encourage facility births, for instance. And so that draws mothers in for facility births, but if the baby has a complication, then that may be a disincentive for her seeking care. And likewise, if she has to come back for multiple visits on different days to seek different kinds of services, that can cause a problem as well. And then finally, I think we need to look at data collection systems and make sure that you're, we're collecting data on both mothers and newborns, because otherwise you've got basically a program that's operating blind. And so um, information systems are important. I think the, the bottom line in all of this is that if people think about care from a client-centered perspective or a client-oriented perspective, you naturally come to the continuum of care. And that helps solve some of these problems. Too many of our health services are organized at the convenience of the providers, as we all know. Mm -hmm. um, we've been talking a bit about the, the close connections between you know, mother and child. And Alicia, I know that your research has really looked beyond the sort of newborn period or beyond this childbirth delivery. And was hoping you could share with us your, your latest study and research around that. Sure. Well, thank you also for inviting me to be on the panel. Um, we have recently completed a four-country multi-methods study looking at the impacts of maternal deaths on children and families more broadly. Um, 
as was suggested, uh, with support from the Hansen Family Foundation. And uh, in South Africa, Tanzania, Malawi, and Ethiopia, we found really dramatically elevated levels of mortality, uh, especially among infants. So in the first 12 months of life, we found between 50 and 80 percent of uh, indexed children born to women who had died in pregnancy or childbirth were dead by the age of one. Um, but then we also found a whole series of additional effects, family dissolution, uh, nutritional deficits and other kinds of morbidities, um, in later life, uh, early dropout against a background of contexts where there is early dropout, even more significant early dropout um, among uh, daughters of mothers who had died, early pregnancy um, and marriage. Um, so, so quite a series of adverse consequences flowing from the death of, uh, of one woman. Um, for both biological reasons, as Anna suggested, and also for the because of the social role that mothers play in so many societies. Um, I, I want to come back to, to sort of your thoughts on the continuum of care, too. Um, but first, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to Kirsten, who's joining us remotely. Um, I, I wanted to, to ask you sort of where mama fits into this conversation. Um, and, and, and bridging this gap between, you know, women, maternal health and child health. Sure. Thank you, Marisa. And um, thank you for having me today. And I'm happy I can join all of you, if, if not remotely. Um, so it's interesting to listen to the other panelists. And I think that MAMA does touch on all of these different aspects. So MAMA is a public-private partnership. Um, our partners are USAID, Johnson & Johnson, the United Nations Foundation, and Baby Center. And for about um, three and a half years now, we've been working to use mobile phones that are already out there in women's families, in their communities, to get timed and targeted information to them throughout pregnancy and the first three years of their children's lives. And our information um, you know, builds on global best practices, um, UNICEF and WHO standards for the entire continuum of information women need to know, everything from um, encouraging them to go in for antenatal checks, um, to have assisted birth, to be thinking about whether or not they need to save um, for transportation, for birth, um, looking at immunization, um, breastfeeding, nutrition during pregnancy. But then we also look at cognitive development kinds of things um, when their babies are young. And what we do is we really work to get that information directly to the hands of the women in a way that is targeted right when they need it. So they'll sign up for the messages and they'll receive two to three messages a week that are timed for right where they are in the pregnancy or the age of their small child. And then we also highly localize the information, not just um, for language, of course, but also for cultural context and really understanding what the key drivers are of the maternal infant mortality in a particular area, what the um, cultural myths and norms are that might be contributing to those factors and being able to address them in um, a really localized way. Um, we also highly localize it for the way women get information on phones. So for example, we know that the women that we serve in South Africa are much more tech savvy than other women we serve. And so we have a Mobi site that they can access. But women in Bangladesh often don't even have their own phones. So, and they also are not literate um, and don't really know how to navigate a phone well. 
So we have a system where they can just receive a phone call at a specific day and time of day that they choose when their husband might be home with the family phone um, or they're at, you know, at a community place where they can get the call. And then we also have messages in Bangladesh for the husbands and the mother-in-laws because we recognize what a huge impact they have on the decision-making of the family for these issues. So, you know, we really seek to get the information to the woman um, and so that she can decide um, and have some information on how best to care for herself, care for her baby, and when and how she should be seeking care. So even in the absence of a fully functioning health system, you know, which we heard doesn't exist in a lot of places, there are some things that she can do um, to better take care of herself and her baby during this critical time. Great. And we actually have a, a clip um, featuring the work of Mama in Bangladesh. Um, where I believe you've been working since 2011. So yes, let's, yes. let's turn to that. It's a little bit of a আমার <laughs> আমার পরিবারের সবাই মানে মেসেজ পে সবাই আমার বাচ্চারে খুব যত্ন করে মানে ওইভাবে আর কি ইয়ে করে মেসেজ যেভাবে আসে ওইভাবে মেসেজ সবাই আর কি ওইভাবে যত্ন করে বাচ্চারে এখন আমার ডাক্তারের কাছে যেতে হয় মানে স্বাস্থ্যকর্মীর কাছে যেতে হয় যে জানতে হয় এখন আমার তা হয় না আমি মেসেজের মাধ্যমে ঘরে বসে পাইতেছি সেবাগুলো খাবার তারপর স্বাস্থ্য সবকিছু এভাবে আমি দেখছি মেসেজের মাধ্যমে আর কি সবকিছু পেয়ে ওইভাবে আমি লালন পালন করছি Um, so I want to get back to, to the crux of sort of underscoring all of, all of the, the comments that, that all of you have made, which is the, the, the continuum, the lack of continued care between women and children. And I wondered if you could um, articulate what are the key challenges and obstacles to that. Is it, is it funding? Is it, um, you know, donor governments or, or country um, recipients? Um, you know, what, what, what sort of challenges are you seeing? Thank you. Thank you for that uh, question. Uh, Joy mentioned a few minutes ago uh, some very critical challenges at the country level. But those challenges also happen at a global level that to some extent is failing to provide an enabling environment uh, for those changes at the country level to happen. So too often we see that uh, different initiatives are either targeted to mothers or to babies and don't make a, an, a good enough effort to bring them closer together. 
as part of the of the processes uh, that uh, well the global policy community is now engaged in uh, due to the transition of the Millennium Development Goals into the Sustainable Development Goals, we've seen some wonderful initiatives like ev every newborn action plan, that's a roadmap for how to raise the visibility of uh, newborns that were so neglected until recently, and how to increase, to improve the declines uh, in uh, their mortality and morbidity. Can you talk a little bit more about what the plan is for those who might not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although I <laughs> think that joy would okay. be perfect for that because it's, it's Save the Children and Saving Newborn Lives have, well, they have play, played such a critical role in that, but I would be uh, happy to do it as well. In fact, we, the Maternal Health Task Force, have been more involved in this other initiative called Ending Preventable Maternal Mortality, Morbidity Mortality, EPMM. And those, uh, both initiatives definitely recognize the mother-baby diet and the importance of addressing both mothers and babies at the same time. But they have names that keep them separate, right? One refers to the newborns, the other one refers to the mothers. And uh, the connections that could have made what weren't made at the beginning. Uh, so now we are definitely redressing that, uh, but initially, that wasn't the mind frame that the global community had. Integration wasn't uh, in, uh, well, strongly enough in the minds of, of uh, the people in charge of leading these efforts. Uh, you mentioned donors. Donors sometimes, uh, well, replicate uh, that, uh, that behavior and that uh, non-integrated mind frame, and they have separate programs for projects they support on maternal health or on newborn health, or on other <coughs> health issues, HIV, AIDS, malaria, so many other things that are not integrated. Uh, and uh, finally, even academic organizations like the Harvard School of Public Health on, or international NGOs uh, focus on their projects on one or the other. They don't think enough about generating the evidence, for instance, about innovative ways uh, to promote integration and identify bottlenecks and, and opportunities to move that forward. So I think that we all need to start thinking differently about these issues. Um, Joy, did you want to add? Yes, to please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, without getting into the details of what's in ENAP, I think that uh, it's important to note that both Anna and I are working on programs funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and one is maternal health and the other is newborn health. However, they have been extremely supportive of the idea that we try to bridge the gap and begin to bring these two global movements together so that it can be operationalized at the country level in some sensible fashion. Let me also say quickly that the Every Newborn Action Plan deals with, and it sets out targets for reductions in newborn mortality, so neonatal mortality specifically, but also reducing stillbirths, because there's still 2.6 million stillbirths every year because of part of them because of poor intrapartum care and so forth. Um, and then uh, the ENAP document also includes the maternal health targets because from the very beginning, the people um, and, and the whole effort was led, by the way, by WHO and UNICEF, but they believed that it was very important to bring the mother into the picture because obviously no progress can be made on newborns until you address the problems of maternal health at the same time. 
And Elisa, could you help put <laughs> this in greater context of women's health or sort of what, what these developments around linking newborn and maternal health, what it may be missing from the conversation? Um, if anything. <laughs> sure. Uh, it, well, I just want to, I, I want to reemphasize that this is really a serious problem at country program level. I mean, in the course of our research, we found, uh, for example, that even if a woman were HIV positive and had been receiving PMTCT, if she died in childbirth, it was unlikely for the follow-up um, HIV care to be given to the infant in many of these countries. So there is a real disconnect and a real need to break through that fragmentation. Um, I think to put it in a little bit of context, I mean, the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn, and Child Health was established in 2005 precisely to bring some of this dispersion in efforts together in terms of research uh, and uh, targeted at government policymakers and, and funders as well. Um, and the continuum of care refers to both the reproductive, maternal, newborn child continuum and also the continuum of care from primary care to secondary care to tertiary care, um, which is equally critical for the health system. Uh, but the problem, to some extent, I th and I think this is what you were alluding to, is that the continuum of care in some sense reduces um, women to instruments or, or entities uh, with reproductive intentions and capacity. And women are much more than that and should be treated as much more than that with full uh, sexual and reproductive rights as equal uh, members uh, of society. I mean, ultimately, uh, maternal mortality is the culmination of layers of structural mm -hmm. and discrimination and exclusion that women face in society. And that, uh, and, and often women and children face uh, or experience their poverty and marginalization through their context with indifferent and dysfunctional health systems. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to take the opportunity to turn to Kirsten. Um, and, and I was just thinking about the link between um, mama and, and, and HIV work, because I know that you've taken sort of the approach of going in and working with women, uh, pregnant women or women who've just given birth, and also add in that element of, of um, HIV care. If you could talk about that. Sure. In South Africa, our messages focus quite a bit on prevention of mother-to-child transmission. Um, and the way that we handle it there is um, because of the high rate of HIV um, in South Africa, it's just an integrated part of all of our messages that all moms get. But early on, a woman has an opportunity to opt into more detailed messages around PMTCT. And we don't ask her, are you HIV positive? We just say, do you want to receive more detailed messages. And then she gets more detailed messages about how to take care of herself during pregnancy, what she needs to be bringing to um, the birth center for birth, um, and how she can prepare for the birth and afterwards um, to prevent HIV. But I also did just wanna say along these lines of um, the importance of designing programs that are really focused and appropriate for the mother. And um, from our perspective, you know, we use the tool of the mobile phone and um, I often see a lot of assumptions um, that you know everybody's got a phone and everybody's got a smartphone and everybody can get on the internet. Um, and those are the kinds of things that aren't necessarily true for everybody that we're trying to reach. And um, I think to many of the points that were brought up today, I think understanding 
who the woman is, not just the myopic piece that we're focusing on, but who is she? And what is the context that she lives in? What's the reality of her world? And how can we get the information we need to in a way that makes sense for her? So, um, you know, again, for example, you know, many women, um, to some of the points that Alicia brought up, you know, many women um, are very disempowered in a lot of ways in their lives. And then that transfers to phone ownership. They aren't allowed to own phones in some places. And there's a high level of skepticism when a woman has a phone. And so we have to really look at that and understand that and figure out how to design programs that fit with that cultural context. So um, I think that's true, whether you're using the mobile phone as a tool or some other way of trying to reach women um, and um, really understanding who they are, I think is just is critical. Well, we've, we've talked a bit about the obstacles and challenges um, that exist to that sort of keep these or have historically kept these in, in separate silos, sort of uh, mothers, children, women um, as mothers. Um, but I wondered if we could, we, we could address how you actually break down the silos. Um, uh, Anna, you and Joy talked about the Every Newborn Action Plan and um, you know, also a similar effort with maternal um, health and wondered what other specific um, you know, initiatives should be pursued um, in order to bridge this, this gap, this divide. Thank you. Uh, one initiative that uh, we are pursuing uh, in very close collaboration uh, with Saving Newborn Lives and other organizations is to provide uh, a space uh, for information exchange, uh, for productive debate, for discussion about maternal and newborn health and how to bring it closer together. And as part of that effort, as a very important part of that effort, uh, we will be sponsoring a, a conference uh, in a few months. Would you mind putting the slide on? It's uh, the Global Maternal Newborn Health Conference that uh, will take place in Mexico City uh, between October 18th and 21st uh, this year. Uh, the next, please. It's just two slides. Uh, that is co-convened by a large number of organizations that uh, came together uh, in their interest uh, to support this conference. And some of these organizations were the ones that used to work on one side or the other of the aisle. Uh, so it's wonderful to see that this effort is coming to fruition. And we are very excited about the conference and very happy to provide more information to whoever is interested. How does that fit in? I mean, there, there are. Um uh, I don't want to say legacy, but many well-intentioned, you know, efforts to um, coordinate care, you know, with every woman, every child, for example, um, the UN's sort of main initiative for women and children's health. How, how does this, what is the significance of this sort of bringing together um, this conference sort of in these greater uh, and other efforts? Well, precisely, it's the, the conferences will provide a wonderful venue for technical scientific exchange, mm -hmm. but it, it it is also having other benefits, like bringing together these different uh, partners that used to work <coughs> in a certain level with a certain level of disconnect. Uh, so, for instance, we have Every Mother, Every Child as one of the co-sponsors. We have uh, UNICEF uh, that is much more engaged with the child health part, uh, working together with WHO and UNFPA. 
working more on the mother side or the reproductive health side. So the conference is providing uh, like uh, an opportunity uh, because we are meeting together uh, per periodically with all these partners to engage in a dialogue and uh, it will be much more than the conference itself. Uh, it will definitely help uh, move integration forward at the global level and at the country level as well. And as Anna is saying, I think it's an opportunity to hear from some real world experience what people are doing to help integrate better at the country level. I just want to cite one quick example of <clears throat> a program in northern Nigeria where most women are actually delivering at home. They're not getting into facilities. And um, John Snow Inc. has a program there to distribute chlorhexidine, which is the antiseptic used to clean the umbilical stump, and mesoprostol for postpartum hemorrhage. So the putting the two together and distributing those through community health workers directly into households so that women have at least those two tools on hand to try to save babies and mothers. So there, there are lots of examples like that out there and I think that the conference will help bring some of that into focus. Did you want um, Well, I think the conference is a very important step. I think at national level, um, integration really needs to start from the beginning, from national costed plans of action, um, because it's very, very difficult if it doesn't start at the beginning. Once budgets are separated, programs are designed, job descriptions are formed, to try to do integration after the fact. Um, so I think starting with plans of action, with budgetary allocations, with training, for health service providers, uh, and then looking at the indicators we use to measure performance, um, and instituting systematic accountability mechanisms that value integration of services, I think, is, is important. What is the current reality, I guess, for those budgets for, um, do we need more money, or is it just it's being not allocated in the most effective way? Is that to me? <laughs> you know, I, I have to be, I mean, I, maybe this isn't the politically correct answer, but I think there are huge problems of um, misallocation or inappropriate allocation of resources, even in the poorest countries. So it's not as if uh, the resources aren't there for the most part. The resources are there, but they're often being used inappropriately. Having said that, there are never enough resources to do what needs to be done, and it's very important for the international community to step up and provide additional support and do it in a way that um, brings programs together, allows for flexibility and learning in the programs, uh, and not to have these very narrow categorical vertical uh, implementation procedures that then you know don't leave much behind in terms of health system strengthening or anything that's very durable into the future. Carson. Mm -hmm. I wanted to give you the chance to just briefly talk about yeah. um, the role of the private sector in all this, because you certainly work with you know, many partners. Sure, and I just really agree with what Joy just said. I think that um, you know, long-term flexible funding is one of the biggest um, areas that needs to be focused on. Um, you know, this work doesn't happen overnight. And um, as we are increasingly finding ourselves needing to work in um, a partnership way, in public-private partnerships, bringing all these different sectors together, um, you know, bringing in the UN agencies, bringing in the host country governments, bringing in bilateral funders, foundations, and corporate sector, it takes a tremendous amount 
of aligning of agendas and understanding how each of these different sectors and entities works and what their perspectives are, that takes a lot of work. Ultimately, I think we get better results from it, um, but that takes time and that requires resources. And I think that we need to be looking at how do we have long-term flexible funding that allows us to work in this more um, cross-sector, innovative and flexible way than getting siloed into really super spe specific time-limited um, outcomes. And I understand the outcomes and they're important, um, but I think that there's, there's a way in which things need to be a little bit more flexible and, and strategic and long-term. Um, I think with the public-private partnership piece, we're finding that it is um, a critical part of our work, and I see across international development that a lot of what we do, you know, we need the innovation of the corporate sector. Many of the products, many of the commodities that are coming out are from the corporate sector. For us, you know, obviously mobile network operators and handsets are all um, corporate sector, um, but they can bring a different way of thinking. They can bring, um, you know, their products, their devices. Um, but then we also need the connection to the UN agencies who are out there. We need to have the policies and the frameworks at the host country government levels. I really agree with what Alicia said of needing to have, you know, government level plans. Um, we're working in Nigeria and they have a saving 1 million lives and we're working with the ICT for saving 1 million lives. And that's really given us a great um, framework to work within and to be able to partner really broadly and deeply um, in that country. So I think, you know, public-private partnerships are, are the way that we're moving, but there's a lot um, of detail and um, things that need to shift for those to work well. And I certainly can get into more of that later. I certainly have a number of follow-up questions, but I feel like it's time to turn to our, to our audience, um, those in our studio and also online. Thank you, Marissa. I think we're going to start with just some of our online questions. We have some that have come in from email and on our chat. So um, I'll start with this one from Peggy Garland. When I was in public health school in the 90s, there was a lot of research coming out about the importance of a woman's health status before she even becomes pregnant for the pregnancy outcome for the woman and her child. And yet we see trends indicating that maternal mortality and morbidity are getting worse, not better, despite this understanding. What is the current thinking about this discrepancy? I would be happy to, to address it, if it's okay. Oh, sure, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, from a medical perspective, and I'm sure that Ali will talk from a different perspective. Uh, yeah, health of the girl and the adolescent and the woman before she gets pregnant is absolutely critical and definitely influences whatever will happen during, uh, during a pregnancy and beyond. In fact, as we were talking before, uh, women's health shouldn't be divided into little pieces. It, it should be rather seen as a continuum throughout the life cycle and each stage of a woman's life influencing her health and well-being at the next stage. And very often the same social determinants that either help the woman achieve a status of health, uh, good health and well-being or not, will influence her chances at later uh, stages. So it's definitely a continuum. Uh, the second part of, of the, the question, in fact, uh, builds on a premise that is not actually true. Uh, 
maternal mortality, at least, is decreasing. It's not getting worse. It's getting better uh, in most places. At least uh, that's the global average. And in most countries, maybe they won't achieve the Millennium Development Goals. Most of them won't. But still, there is a decline in maternal mortality. The challenges are changing, and very well, very soon many countries will start facing non-communicable diseases and indirect causes of maternal mortality as the, as the main issue they have to deal with, and that will require um, new infrastructure, new training, new supplies. I mean, the challenges never end. Uh, but the situation, I wouldn't say, is uh, worse now than a few years ago. Lisa, did you want to add? No, I would definitely echo what Anna said. I think the other thing to note is that uh, even though we've made enormous progress on maternal mortality, we also know that there are great disparities among income quintiles. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, an estimated 62% of maternal mortality occurs in sub-Saharan Africa. And within income quintiles, an indicator like skilled birth assistance is, shows the greatest disparities. And that doesn't even include kind of marginalized populations like disabled women or war-affected women. Or, so I, I think we need to make greater efforts at hardwiring equity into future development frameworks. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. I'll take another one and then we can ask our audience if they have any. Well, why don't we take some from our audience right now? Because I see hands. <laughs> okay. Um, so many of the changes that I think we all would agree are needed are long-term um, systemic changes in women's knowledge and status and health systems performance, et cetera. Um, unfortunately, in my experience at least, the attention span of most people in global health, whether it's donors or ministries or implementers, is very short. We kind of jump from the topic of the, you know, maybe two to three years, et cetera. What can we do, what is needed to maintain a sustained effort so that two years from now, we are continuing to make progress, continuing to put a spotlight on the changes that are needed to end preventable maternal and newborn deaths. Joy, Why do I get to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for that question, Mark. I mean, I think that this is, if I knew the answer to that, um, I'd be, you know, a very happy lady. But um, I, I think that part of it is that we have to do a better job of communicating about the importance of health system strengthening and those institutional investments. I mean, um, I know I'm in danger of giving away my age, but in the 70s, uh, Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and others were making substantial investments in you know, building schools of public health, developing these long-term institutions. Um, that would help benefit countries. But you're right, the appetite for that has gone away and now everyone wants results yesterday or they w are not willing to allocate money. So we need to find a way to talk to policymakers and legislators about this in ways that resonate with them. And so far, I don't think we've gotten it. If you go to the Hill today and you talk to a bunch of staffers or members about health system strengthening, their eyes glaze over. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear about the number of children immunized, the number of women saved, et cetera. Anna, did. Yeah, one, one quick comment about the Millennium Development Goals. I think that the, 
well, the MDGs ha have many limitations, but one of the, the beauties of the MDGs is that they kept the attention pretty much focused for 15 years, which is mm -hmm. quite unique. The, I think that the focus is now, well, we are facing the risk of losing focus next because the new set of uh, global goal, goals that the international community is likely to embrace in September of this year will only have one health goal, overarching goal, that reads, ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. Which is great because it definitely talks about uh, health during the life cycle. It talks about health for all, somehow alluding to equity. And it talks about, in a positive way, way about health and not in a negative way as maternal mortality or child mortality. But it's so vague. And it will be one of maybe more than 100 goals. So I think that our golden moment in the maternal and mm -hmm. child health community, from that perspective, from a global policy perspective, uh, may be over soon. So we need to make a very, very important and focused effort uh, now and in the years to come to keep maternal and newborn health high in the global policy agenda. Marisa, can I just make a comment about that? Sure. Um, I, you know, it occurs to me as Mark asked his question that, you know, we, we, we all are living in this world that's about sound bites and quick wins. And when I look at all of my partners and stakeholders, they each in different ways have major pressures to provide quick wins to whoever their stakeholders are. And so it, key, it trickles down, right? So when we finally get money um, and are told what we need to do, we get all this pressure to provide really quick wins and things that can be quickly communicated out um, to whoever our funders and other partners, stakeholders are. And so when I heard Joy talk about things being a little bit more, have a longer term focus in the 70s, I think part of what we're feeling is part of what of the world that we exist in today. Um, with these sound bites and quick wins. And I think maybe some thought about how can we, you know, kind of shift the conversation about the need for, yes, quick wins are great, but how do we really look for the long-term sustainable wins um, that we all want to achieve? Can I add a few comments? I mean, I think we did the research on the impacts of maternal mortality on children precisely to show that Although maternal mortality is a relatively, maternal death is a relatively rare event, um, and there are only an estimated 289,000 maternal deaths globally each year, the, the consequences are far more uh, uh, far-reaching than previously well understood. And so when they're in a low resource setting, there is priority setting and trade-offs to be made. Um, that should be taken into account. Having said that, going back to Mark's question, I think, um, uh, and, and I'm, I might um, just differ a little bit from Anna in thinking that I, I think the indicators chosen for the MDGs and now the ones that the many more that will be chosen for the SDGs have, in a sense, driven this 
um, very outcome-focused approach that neglects unsexy things about health systems, like the need for fuel, for ambulances, and you know things like that that people don't want to donors don't necessarily want to fund in their projects to get specific outcomes. Um, but more broadly, I think in public health, we think of health systems still as being this kind of delivery apparatus for goods and services. And if we thought more broadly about health systems as really core social institutions, the way justice systems are, I think we might get beyond um, the kind of narrow outcome indicators uh, that we have been using. And also think then about health systems embedded in the larger social context, because we know that most distributions of health and disease are shaped by social determinants beyond the health sector and medical care itself. Thank you. Um, I do just want to, I appreciate the thoughts about the MDGs because we've had some questions coming in about that. And I know we have questions in the audience, so I do just want to take one more from our live chat here, which just came in. My doctoral dissertation explores how mobile phones can be used to increase awareness about maternal health policies available in rural India where I, where I audio broadcasted policy messages to women in their local language languages. One of the challenges I realized was if she does not own a mobile phone, messages are not communicated and often benefits if they are cash incentives are co-opted by the other members in the family. How can we overcome that hurdle? And I, this would be a, a question for Kirsten. Mm -hmm. Sure, and this is certainly something that we've come across um, in our work. And so what we really tried to do is understand um, does a woman have access to the phone? And if she doesn't, who does? And how can we engage them? And usually it's the husband. Um, and so we work to try to um, adjust our messages for him to explain the importance of his role um, in supporting the mother and supporting his child to be healthy. And we found that that's gone a really long way in both India and Bangladesh in getting women to actually eventually get their own phones where the husbands start to realize that there's a value for her to have that phone. Um, so I think it's um, a matter of looking at how do you make the case for the person who is controlling the phone or the money, um, why it's important for the woman to be able to get this information and why his role is important in that as well. So we've found that that's been um, working pretty well in those, in those kinds of situations. Thank you. Do we have time for a question? I think we have time for one more question, then we have some final yeah. remarks here. So. Hi, uh, I'm Ridhu Pandey, and I'm working uh, uh, with the implementation of an RCT in India for safe childbirth checklist in the state of Uttar Pradesh. And one of the unexpected successes has been follow-up through call centers and mobile on the outcomes of uh, birth. And I was wondering if there were experiences to share where we could uh, sort of bridge the gap between the community healthcare and the and create a demand on the health systems using the mobile technology so that we also uh, 
encourage health system development, especially in prevention of complications, either prenatal or postnatal. So the question again for Kirsten. I think so. yeah. <laughs> Kirsten. Sure, I just want to make sure I understand your, your question. So it's, what, what were your findings in terms of the call center gap? So it wasn't actually a call center gap. We were able to uh, follow up a number of women using the call center. And uh, for women who didn't have phones, we, employ, uh, we contacted the ASHA or the community healthcare workers in India who, who always have a phone. And they became our uh, persons with information or uh, the gap between the mother uh, and the health system. So my question to you, my question is how can, if, if there are any experiences where we've been able to generate demand on the health system to provide services uh, f to prevent complications in the pre or the postnatal period? Yeah, most definitely. And that's part of what we're looking at in our research is, you know, we call mama a demand generator and we see it as educating women to understand what services are available for her and creating more demand for her to get into the clinics um, to connect with the ASHAs, the healthcare workers um, for services. So I think um, most definitely mobile can be used in that way. And the direct to household kinds of mobile services are the ones that um, can really educate whoever you're trying to reach, whether it's the, the mother or somebody else in the family, um, and to create demand for services um, using those phones. It, we've, there's all sorts of studies going on around the world, not just in the maternal and child health, but other ones as well. Um, so I'm happy to, to talk with you offline and point you to some of the research that we've done um, around that. Um, well, before we conclude today, I want to give uh, each of the panelists the opportunity to sort of give your one big, you know, brief <laughs> policy recommendation for what needs to be done in this space. We can start with you, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, well, one important message from my perspective is that policymakers, decision makers, global and national, should support innovation. Uh, but defined in a broad way, I don't think that innovation only applies to technologies. I think that we should come up with new ways to think about structures, new, new ways to think about health systems, uh, innovations that won't be using uh, Alicia's words as sexy maybe as some technologies, but uh, will represent hopefully a change. And uh, looking at that from an integration perspective, look at models that uh, will allow to really integrate services and measure the impact they are having because the work doesn't end when something is implemented. Mm -hmm. If we don't uh, evaluate the effects, good and bad, of whatever we are introducing, we are not moving the agenda forward. So I would, uh, well, I would hope that policymakers commit to that. Joy? I can only have one. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that, that um, I think has sort of uh, been part of this conversation today as well is how supply oriented we are. We always think about healthcare providers and what they're going to do to people and how we get, you know, communities connected with the health system. And all of that, of course, is very important. But I think we cannot forget that mothers are the primary caretakers of their children and that there's a huge amount of power they have to improve healthcare within the family, within the home setting. 
And uh, social norms in communities can be changed and can be um, brought in in ways that are supportive of families. So I think we shouldn't forget about the demand side of things and really keep our eye on what can be done in addition to just health systems, what can be done by communities and people themselves. Alicia? Uh, well, I would agree with everything that's already been said um, and, and also uh, emphasize something that Kirsten said earlier, which is what a role funding plays and how I think in addition to policymakers, it would be enormously helpful if donors and funders took a more flexible, long-term approach um, that allowed um, better integration, different ways of evaluating, as Anna says, which is critical, in a more kind of embedded um, uh, way than is currently done and allowed us to, to, to measure other kinds of factors in what we're doing to make progress. Carson. So uh, that was very close to what I was going to say. Um, Long-term flexible funding, um, but that is thoughtfully designed to support the kind of very different model and the complex model of public-private partnerships. Well, thank you. Thank you to everyone. Um, that brings us to the end of our, our discussion today. Um, but you can continue it online at forumhsph.org. And I hope you'll also join the forum again this Tuesday, March 3rd, at 12.30 p.m. Eastern um, for their discussion of what shapes health. So thank you very much to all of our panelists. And thank you, Carson. Thank you. <laughs> This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.